it seems to me that that obviously Purdue knew that there were major problems with Oxycontin, but you you aggressively and and I think in in a dishonest way uh, push this drug on on doctors. Mr. Sackler, yes or no? Do you agree that addiction is a disease? I do. Yes. Dr. Sackler, yes or no, do you agree that addiction is a disease? Yes. According to an internal email, Dr. Richard Sackler wrote, and I quote, we have to hammer on the abusers in every way possible. They are the culprits and the problem. They are reckless criminals, unquote. In our last episode of Outside Counsel, we explored the cause of America's opioid epidemic as well as its magnitude and dimensions. In this episode, we take a more granular look. How did this start and why has it continued? In order to understand that, we need to talk about prescription opioid marketing. Specifically, who was marketing opioids? To whom were they marketing opioids? Why were they doing it in that way? And what effect did it have? I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. Prescription opioids are highly controlled substances under a federal law, the Controlled Substances Act, which was passed in 1970. Most prescription opioids, such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, hydromorphone, morphine, and fentanyl, are Schedule II drugs. That designation means that those drugs have a high potential for abuse and for inducing severe physical or psychological dependence. Prescription opioids are not designed to treat any injury or disease. Their only medicinal purpose is to temporarily reduce the sensation of pain. One would hope that drug companies who manufacture these opioid drugs would refrain from aggressively promoting drugs that potent to doctors and dentists as pills, patches, and lollipops that should be widely prescribed. However, opioid drug manufacturers did just that. One would hope that if opioid drug manufacturers promoted these drugs, they would employ sales representatives who were careful specialists in addiction and opioid risk management. However, Opioid drug companies did no such thing. They chose sales representatives who generally knew nothing about addiction or opioid risk management. They were marketing experts, often hard charging 20 somethings without any expertise in medicine, science or pharmacology. Opioid manufacturers paid large sales forces to promote opioids aggressively and without any real differentiation to all of the non-opioid prescription drugs they were trying to sell. One would hope sales representatives would not resort to giving doctors and dentists free trips and Michelin star meals or make whimsical class two controlled substances by handing out souvenirs bearing the opioid brand name, stuffed animals, stuffed dolls, paperweights, reflex hammers, water bottles, jump ropes, puzzles, stereo equipment, and a mock-up of the United States Constitution, declaring as part of the Bill of Rights, the right to take a particular opioid to preserve the freedom of pain. But they did. In recent years, 
there has been extensive study of the effects of these marketing practices, both by the federal government and also by scientific researchers publishing literature. Peer-reviewed published literature now confirms what opioid drug companies understood all along, that the aggressive marketing of opioids to doctors and dentists causes a lot more opioids to be prescribed and consequently increases the number of addictions and overdoses in the places where that aggressive marketing occurs. One may be both surprised and saddened by how little government regulation and oversight there has historically been of these sales tactics. We will discuss in this episode how difficult it actually is to regulate person-to-person -person promotion of drugs. When a sales representative is pitching a doctor or a dentist to prescribe certain drugs, no one from the government is in the room with them. These misleading marketing campaigns were wildly commercially successful and durable. In their aftermath, many healthcare providers and patients remain misinformed or uninformed. One of the things that opioid sales representatives were taught to do was find doctors who treat a lot of patients complaining of pain. Those would include pain management physicians, primary care physicians, OBGYNs, dentists, podiatrists, rheumatologists. Very rarely are any of those physicians by training addiction specialists. And they rely on sales representatives to tell them about the characteristics of the drugs they're promoting. As we talked about in the first episode, the big promotional lie that started the opioid epidemic and fueled it was that opioids are generally not addictive even when taken for long terms for chronic pain, when in fact the opposite is true. Physicians and dentists were told by sales representatives that the risk of addiction from prescription opioids when taken over long periods of time was still less than 1%, when in fact, in truth, for chronic pain taken on a perpetual basis, the addiction rate is between 10 and 30%. But in order to sell that big lie, sales representatives had to remove the stigma and the mystery associated with narcotic drugs. In order to do that, they had to make it routine to prescribe opioid drugs, even whimsical. And the souvenirs, the promotional tools they would use in order to promote these drugs were astonishing in how childlike they were. The degree to which they tried to reduce the stigma of opioid drugs to something that was fun and lifestyle driven. Opioids were promoted by sales representatives as lifestyle drugs. And so one of the ways in which successful sales representatives often promoted opioid drugs was through whimsy. To use souvenirs and leave behinds with physicians that made opioid drugs seem not only essential, but fun. Fun for the patient, fun to prescribe and routine. You're doing good here. What isn't fun about doing good? And the souvenirs that they would use might seem comical to us now. 
how is it you'd be handing a professional healthcare provider with a medical degree, medical licenses? How are you going to make prescribing highly addictive drugs fun? Well, one of them was to promote opioids with toys, dolls, literal dolls. This particular doll that I'm holding in my hand was a promotion for the drug Ultraset, which is an opioid tramadol. This is literally a tramadol tramadol. I'm holding in my hand a doll of a chef. She's holding a whisk in her hand and on the back one sees that it is an advertisement for Ultraset. And again, this message was clear and it's fun because not only can you play with this doll, but the message is playing. She gets through her day making wonderful omelets and pastries through the help of an opioid drug, and you can too. This is the Vicoprofen Leopard that I'm holding in my hand. The message here was not only is this toy fun, but this drug is fun, right? You can attack your pain like a wild cat with this particular opioid, and you can play with this toy. Now I'm holding in my hand the OxyContin seal, perhaps the seal of approval. It is literally a fuzzy seal, stuffed animal wearing an OxyContin medallion. This snow globe was also promoting the tramadol drug Ultraset. These are the Opana stereo speakers. In my opinion, the most appalling souvenir that was used to promote opioid drugs was the Vicodin mock-up constitution on fake parchment purporting to be the United States Constitution. A drug company ran a promotion called Freedom from Pain, and it had the word Vicodin below the slogan Freedom from Pain. And the concept was a patient has the right to not be in pain and to be prescribed Vicodin in order to alleviate that pain. Think about that. We're talking about a controlled substance. And the concept was instead of these are powerful drugs that are highly addictive, that can cause people to overdose. Patients complaining of pain had a fundamental right to receive them, and a doctor had an absolute duty to prescribe them. If you're looking for the wrong way to treat a patient complaining of pain, making the right to receive a controlled substance fundamental is certainly a terrible way to go about it. One of the things that sales representatives are required to do is provide open quote, fair balance, close quote, on the risks and benefits of these drugs when they promote them. Well, if you don't train sales representatives to actually understand the true addictive nature of these drugs, or worse, you give them misinformation, like these drugs are not addictive, or the addiction rate is less than 1%, which is what happened for years, then it's impossible to expect that they're really gonna provide fair balance because their economic motivation is to prescribe as many as possible. That's how they make their money. That's how they succeed at your company. And yet they are totally ill-equipped to actually provide accurate and fulsome risk information. And that's exactly how opioid manufacturers wanted it. So you take a drug, that is a controlled substance that should only be prescribed for short periods of time in discrete circumstances in medically monitored settings. 
and it becomes the most prescribed drug in America. The only way you accomplish that is through marketing, and that's what happened. There were sales representatives who began to reflect upon the fact that this kind of aggressive promotion of opioids was resulting in harm. That they were being set out into the world and compensated by selling the most opioids possible. And maybe that's not a good idea. I spoke to former Purdue sales representative, Carol Panera for more. Carol, welcome to our show, Outside Council. Hi, Jeffrey, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I was in the pharmaceutical industry for about 18 years. I uh, spent about eight of that with a um, large company, Novartis, and then about four and a half years with um, Purdue. And what years were you at Purdue? Purdue, I was there after the major lawsuit. Um, I was there from 2008 until 2013. And when you say Purdue, we're talking about Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer and promoter of the drug OxyContin. Yes, Purdue with a U. Hmm. So as a sales representative for Purdue Pharma, was it your job to promote OxyContin? Yes, that, that was pretty much 95% of the job. In pharmaceuticals, you're, every territory is given a target list of doctors to call on. So I... Promote, uh, primarily called on um, general practitioners, family doctors, some pain specialists, um, a few orthopedic doctors. Geographically, where did you do this? In the South Jersey area. I had um, the southern, southwestern counties in New Jersey, kind of across the Delaware River from Philadelphia and south of Philadelphia. How did you come to work for Purdue? Kind of an interesting story. Um, I was very happy at Novartis. And two things that kind of precipitated my leaving there, which I never anticipated, was that we had a, at Novartis, we had a major drug for high blood pressure that was uh, challenged by a generic company. They came out with a generic version of it. Um, even though the patent had not expired on one of the components of that particular drug. So um, Novartis was, uh, challenged that in court and lost. So you're looking at a, a, a billion dollar a year drug that was challenged by a generic version of it a year and a half before they lost the patent. That's a lot of money to come out of the bottom line. That and then Novartis also had a, uh, a major discovery for diabetes that they were unable to get through the phase three studies with it. So the two of those things combined led me to ascertain that they were gonna to have to have layoffs. I, I saw my, my particular territory, my market share went from six and a half percent to under 1% in a week's time. Because all of a sudden, patients could obtain the same drug at a lesser price and it was put on drug formularies at a lesser price and all of it, right? Well, what actually what happened was the company did not know about this until they looked at the numbers and saw that everyone's market share had fallen off. And then what they realized was that at, uh, patients were going into the pharmacy with a branded prescription and the pharmacist was saying, oh, I have a generic version of this now. And they were converting a lot of them at the pharmacy. And even my doctors were not aware of it because I would go into the office, the doctor would say to me, a patient told me they went to fill their prescription for Lotrell 
and they were given a generic instead. So all this was happening, like it, it kind, of, kind of like a mini bomb exploding. And then the feedback, all the calls started going into the office. Reps like myself were calling our manager and saying, what's going on? This is what I'm hearing from the doctors. And the whole thing kind of hit at once. And that's what happened. Uh, you hit on another point, which is that prescription drugs require FDA approval before they're brought to market. Correct. And there's a very uh, controversial story about how OxyContin got approval by the FDA in 1995 for its original package insert that said that OxyContin uh, may be less addictive. Mm -hmm. Do you know that story? Yes, yes. And Curtis Wright, Curtis Wright at FDA who approved the drug then went to work for Purdue Pharma. And that happens a lot, not just Purdue. That happens a lot. If you were to go back and look at the history of different products and different companies, you'll see that that happens quite a bit. And it's frightening as a consumer, because you look to the FDA to protect the consumers. And when a, when a drug company brings something to, to, to be approved, the FDA is supposed to look for two things, safety and efficacy. So you have to demonstrate that the drug outperformed whatever it was that you compared it to in the study. And then you also have to show that it's safe. And, and tolerable. And like I said, the general public, you know, relies on the FDA to represent them in that circumstance. And because Purdue Pharma did not have any study showing that OxyContin really was less uh, susceptible uh, to induce addiction or abuse, and yet got FDA approval originally for a package insert saying that it may be less addictive uh, and less subject to abuse. It's outrageous that they got that approval, but that doesn't mean they didn't get it, right? Exactly. And from what I understand, it was based on one sentence in one paragraph written by a doctor who had gone into the hospital to do rounds and check on his patients and had written in this little paragraph that it appeared that the patients that were on um, opioids did not appear to have issues with addiction. I'm kind of oversimplifying. They took that one sentence out of that one small paragraph and ran with it. The rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. That and the fact that they had a graph that they doctored to make it look like the peaks and valleys when the, when the, um, when Oxycontin got into the bloodstream, that the peaks and valleys were smaller than what they were in actuality. And they used that to demonstrate that it was more consistent in the bloodstream, thereby using that as a basis to say that it was less addictive. Makes perfect sense. So there was this notion among some doctors and scientists, let's say 30 years ago, that if the introduction of the opioid into the bloodstream could be gradualized, mm -hmm right, then yeah. you wouldn't have the euphoria and the lows and the need and the craving for the drug in order to alleviate the lows, right? Exactly. 
Exactly. So the concept behind OxyContin was, is that if you had this time release acrylic coating around the drug, the pill itself, that it would more gradually release the drug into the bloodstream and therefore reduce those peaks and valleys. Precisely. And that it would last 12 hours. And Not I, a bad I, idea. No, because I think they had used that same time release concept with a morphine for MS right. cotton with great success. So they thought, okay, why not take that same time release and use it um, on oxycodone? Great point. So back in the 1980s, Purdue Pharma made a name for itself, manufacturing and promoting the drug MS cotton, which was morphine sulfate continuous. Yes. And it was a service that cancer victims who were in intractable pain from metastasized cancer didn't have to be hooked up to an IV anymore to obtain morphine to uh, manage their pain. They could take an oral pill. Great. Mm -hmm. But OxyContin was developed not for people suffering from cancer, but to market to doctors for people complaining of any type of pain. Well, the indication when I was there, I know the indication had changed when I started in 2008, and I'm kind of paraphrasing now, but I know it had to do with moderate to severe chronic pain that required right. an around-the-clock um, opioid um, analgesic. I, I, I think that's pretty close to what the indication was. Well said. But we can certainly we can certainly conceive of any condition causing causing moderate persistent pain, whether it's low back, osteoarthritis, tendonitis, headaches, you name it, right? Well, that's it. That's the whole thing, um, Jeff. Is that they did not specify a particular disease state. It was to do with the severity of the pain, and pain is subjective. It's based on on the feedback from the patient, and what might be severe pain for you might only be moderate pain for me. If I have a fever, that can be measured objectively, and whether or not I have that fever is not based on how I feel about it or how right. I express it to a doctor, but literally what the thermometer says. Exactly. So I don't need a fever reducer if I don't have fever, which we can determine objectively. But a patient complaining of pain, were you trained that pain is whatever the patient says it is because there's no other means to measure it. We were trained to to know how to deal with that and how to discuss that with the phys the doctors and and I want to say prescribers because physicians assistants and nurse practitioners are also allowed to prescribe. So it wasn't just um, doctors or physicians that, that we called on. Then they provided us with tools to help the doctors be able to assess that pain. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a little, maybe six inch strip of paper that had faces on it. And the patient was asked, you know, one being the most mild pain and 10 being excruciating pain. Have you ever heard of that scale referred to as the Gainey scale, G-A-I-N-E-Y? Does that mean? Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. And so you're mentioned. talking about, you're talking about 10 smiley faces and just imagine not a person who has a bad knee. They're actually suffering withdrawal from physical dependence or addiction to OxyContin. They're in tremendous pain. Yes. In 2007, Purdue, the company itself, 
pled to a felony for having misrepresented the drug as less addictive and less prone to abuse than other opioids. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then you hired in after that. Correct. How were you compensated at Purdue? In other words, did you have a salary? Yes. Uh, when everything was going on, even prior to that first lawsuit, uh, they started laying people off because they had to pull back on their marketing. Um, there was a lot of pushback, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, people were dying. People were, were becoming addicted and, and, and dying, and there was a lot of pushback. And so they ultimately had laid off about half of their sales force. At the time, I did not quite see the whole picture. I only saw part of it. Now, years down the road, in retrospect, I can see how the pieces of the puzzle all fit together. And apparently, what happened was in 2008, they decided to, they were going to start expanding again. And they were going to hire about 110 new salespeople across the country. And it was, uh, I think what, what the plan was, and I'm basing this on what, what, I saw in terms of my target list in my territory and, and from the people that I worked with, they decided to drill down, so to speak, make the territories, they were going to make the territories smaller so that the representatives would have more time to call on family doctors and general practitioners, which prior to that time, they really, I think they had called on, um, but they, we're focusing a lot on the pain specialists before that. So now the, the, the plan was we have this 10 milligram of Oxycontin that is indicated as a starting dose for opioid naive patients, meaning a patient who had never been on an opioid. Okay. Um, a pain doctor, by the time the, pa the patient comes to him is well past the need for the 10 milligrams. They're already on the 40 or the, or the 80 every 12 hours, plus whatever else that they might be taking. So the thought being that as a, as a starting dose is a very low starting dose, we can target the general practitioners and the family doctors because after all the indications for moderate to severe pain, let's go after more of that uh, moderate market so that we can expand. I mean, there's, there's two ways to grow your product, either get the people who are using it to prescribe more or expand the amount of people who are prescribing it. Any opioid, a patient will develop a tolerance to any opioid. It wasn't just Oxycontin. Right. It's, it, it's hydrocodone, it's um, fentanyl, it's any of the other uh, morphine. They all have the same uh, potential for addiction. Purdue was able to use that to actually give a legitimacy to Oxycontin, and, here, and here's what I mean by that. If you say that all opioids have the same potential for addiction, you kind of level the playing field. So that once the doctor has made that decision to use an opioid, he's already decided uh, that he's willing to take that risk for his patient for addiction, because he's gonna use an opioid, and regardless of what the opioid is, there's that same potential for addiction. So that once he's made that decision, now why not prescribe Oxycontin? Because, hey, it lasts for 12 hours. You have less of the peaks and valleys. Therefore, insinuating 
without saying it, that it's less addictive. You do admit that Purdue Pharma just admitted to three, committing three felonies, correct? Uh, <clears throat> Representative, uh, at no time in my Purdue career was it's I- It's a yes or no question. Did Purdue Pharma agree that it committed three felonies? As I said in my opening statement, Purdue uh, pleaded guilty to three felonies in federal district court. Purdue actually had a, I'm going to say coupon or a rebate. We gave them out to pharmacies and to doctor's offices. And so that when a patient would come in with their prescription, particularly, it was particularly popular with the independent pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Because that would be something that they could market to make them more valuable to their potential customers. In other words, that was a service that they could provide that maybe that same patient wouldn't get if they went down the street to CVS or Walgreens or Rite Aid. But they would get from going to, you know, Joe Smith's pharmacy in a little town. It was a form or a coupon, so to speak, that gave the patient up to $75 off of their copay. If their copay was $100, they would only pay $25. Wow. They also provided special incentives. If you sold more OxyContin or higher dosages of OxyContin, is that right? Well, our, our, our incentive plan, our bonuses were based on, um, they would give us a, a goal, a quota. And it was broken down by dosing strength. So I would have a, 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 a target quota that I had to reach for the 10 and 15, then the 30 and 40, and then the 60 and 80 milligram. So that we made more bonus money if we hit our goal for the higher dosing strengths than we did for the lower dosing strengths. Are you saying that you made more money if the higher dosages of the addictive drugs sold more? The, if the doctor prescribed more. Right. And so, you know, this, as, as a salesperson, you know that if, if you can get a doctor to start somebody on 10 milligram or convert them to 20 from one of your competitors, you know that if they started on the, or, or were converted to the 20, that at some point they're probably going to have to go to 30, 40, 60, and then, and then 80. So that you constantly wanted to maintain your existing customers, which in our case, our customers were the prescribers. So you want to maintain those that are prescribing, you want to maintain that business because you know that that's going to grow and they're going to go to the higher dosing strengths at some point. But you also want to expand by getting new prescribers all the time because then the new ones would become renewals. In other words, our, 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 our data was broken down by new prescriptions and then um, renewed prescriptions. So in order to grow your total, you constantly had to be getting new, an influx of new prescriptions because then the new after one month would become a renewal. Have you ever heard, you know, the theme by some opioid uh, drug companies or their sales representatives that they were just there to educate the doctor? All, at least in my experience, the pharmaceutical companies that I've worked for and that I have friends that have worked for competitors. That's pretty much the philosophy in that industry. We yeah. make ourselves feel better by saying that we're there to educate because after all, and I've even said this to doctors, I, I'm not, I don't have a medical degree. 
I, I don't have a medical degree. I don't know everything that you that you know, doctor, but I do know about my product. So you're promoting uh, OxyContin primarily to family practitioners, primary care physicians, right? Yes. Do any of them have any specialty in addiction medicine as far as you know? Most of them, no. I had a few, and I, when I say a few, I'm talking about maybe out of 150 doctors, I had two or three toward the end of my time there that were actually licensed to prescribe Suboxone to actually treat addictions. They had to go through a certain amount of training. And I know in the state of New Jersey, they only allowed so many of those licenses to be given out. So it wasn't like all of my 150 primary care doctors all had that ability to do that. It was only a few that actually wanted to do it and then went through the process. So when an opioid drug company, whether it's Purdue Pharma or another one says, oh, well, these were doctors, you know, and they have medical discretion and they're experts and all that. The truth is, is that very few of them have any expertise in addiction medicine at all in your experience. Oh, absolutely. That's true. Yes. So you mentioned earlier that you got a list of physicians to target to promote OxyContin. You got that list from Purdue, right? Correct. And did they obtain that list from sources that sell prescribing data like IMS? This is how it works. IMS purchases the data from participating pharmacies. At the time, and I think it has since changed, Walmart did not participate. Walmart did not sell their data to IMS. But the other big chains and and a lot of the independents, not all of them, would provide that data to, to IMS or sell it to IMS. IMS in turn would scrub the data. So in other words, they would categorize it by zip code, by by doctor within you know certain zip codes. It was up to the pharmaceutical company to decide how detailed they wanted that information provided to them. For example, I would get um, the target doctors that the company sent to me was based on the marketing department would look at all the data by territory. They would look at all the data and they would come up with a list of about 150 prescribers on there that either were already prescribing so they were good customers or they had the potential to become a good customer. And that might mean someone who was prescribing a good amount of opioids, not necessarily mine, but competitors. So I had the opportunity to convert, you know, have them convert the patients. Also, they looked at the managed care information because You can have the best drug in the world, but if it's not on the formularies of the most prominent managed care plans, the doctor's not going to prescribe it. If he prescribes something and the patient goes to the pharmacy and they can't get it covered or the copay is too high because it's it's the tier three, meaning it's not on the formulary, they're not going to write that that particular product. I could sort it by, you know, um, highest to lowest. So the most who's writing the most purpose set, who's writing the least, and then look at their insurance and figure out, okay, they're writing a lot of Percocet because they have a lot of Medicaid patients who can't afford a branded medication. So that may not be the best way for me to focus, you know, my time. As an off story, my days with Novartis, I had one doctor say to me, 
somebody came in with a new product and they said, you know, do you want to know how it works? He said, I don't care if it works or not. If it's covered by insurance, I'm going to write it. Oh my goodness. That's scary. But that's what it, that's what it's getting down to is that if it's not covered, it could be, you can have the cure for cancer. And if it's not covered by insurance, they're not going to prescribe it because what happens is a lot of doctors take a step back. A lot of them have sold their practices to hospitals because they can't afford to maintain an independent practice. So now they've sold to hospitals or to groups. Like we have Advocare is a big one in, in our area in South Jersey. Okay. So now they're, they're working for a corporation. They have to, they have to see a certain amount of patients a day. They have to bring in a certain amount of revenue to the practice a day per week, per year. So they don't have a lot of time anymore to see, to see reps. And the only time they have is maybe if they schedule a breakfast or schedule a lunch. And a lot of them started to cut back on that also because of the Sunshine Act. One of the important parts of the opioid epidemic that people may not appreciate is that most opioid overprescribing, which fed an epidemic, most of that was written by legitimate physicians who were under enormous pressure to prescribe opioids to patients complaining of pain, pressure they were getting from a lot of different places. Correct. Correct. And I think more of that was prior to my time, which resulted in that huge lawsuit. But even after they settled that lawsuit, they continued, albeit in a more devious way, along the same path. Yeah. You know, they changed a few things, tweaked a few things here and there to make it look like they were complying. Oh, we're under a CIA. We're under a corporate integrity agreement. We have to document all of our processes. We have to do this. We have to do that. Everything, you know, all, all of our call notes were scanned by the manager and that was scanned by the vice president of sales. We were told never to, to refer to Oxycontin as Oxy because that's what it was called on the street. So always refer to it as Oxycontin, always put it in your call notes as Oxycontin. You know, it was like following all these tasks and processes. But in the meantime, they were still marketing a drug that never should have been marketed to general practitioners or family doctors under the guise of, well, the 10 milligram is a starting dose for an opioid naive patient. What else are you going to use after you've exhausted all your other possibilities? Or, you know, hey, doc, what, what do you prescribe for your patients that fall within that range? And what if that isn't enough? What if that, what if that um, ibuprofen or that diclofenac is not helping their arthritis? What, what's the next step? Oh, okay, now maybe you try tramadol. Well, tramadol only works in half of the patients that it's prescribed for. So once you've exhausted all your other NSAIDs, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, where do you go? The indication included, of course, that, you know, it's for opioid tolerant people and round the clock opioid care is required in right. order to justify its prescribing, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But Purdue had a slogan for Oxycontin, which was, it was the one to start with, the one to stay with. Do you remember that? Yes. But because the only exception was the 10 milligram I see. that actually had an indication as a starting dose for opioid naive patients. So if the doctor said, well, what if my patient comes in and they have, you know, moderately severe pain, can I start them on the 20 milligram doc? It's not indicated for that. The 10 milligram is indicated. Of course, in your medical judgment, 
that's up to you. But this is what the indication states. Because again, you know, all doctors know they can write off label. They can write off label. They, it's within their, and honestly, and I, I feel kind of, because you're an attorney, but what holds them back in a lot of cases, and I've had them tell me this, from writing off label is the fact that if the patient should have a adverse event or an adverse effect, and it's a serious adverse effect, serious enough where the family is involved. If an attorney gets a hold of it, they're going to sue that doctor and they're going to say to them, this was the indication and you did not follow the indication. Therefore, you wrote off label, you wrote within your own judgment, you're negligent. You're liable. Yeah. Well, you know, that's so, such an interesting point you make about on and off label. It's illegal for sales representatives to promote a drug off-label, that is, apart from the actual indication that the FDA's approved, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. But Purdue trained sales representatives to promote the concept of pseudo-addiction. Is that right? Yes. We actually and, had a marketing piece on that. And pseudo-addiction, of course, is not on that label, right? No. And it's not even a real medical condition, is it? No. Tell me how you were trained about pseudo-addiction. So the, the piece that we had had four paragraphs on it, as I recall, and one of them talked about physical dependence, and one of them talked about tolerance, and then the other paragraph talked about um, pseudo-addiction, and then the other par paragraph talked about true addiction. So the difference was because we would get feedback from a lot of the doctors that, you know, I'm concerned or I don't want to necessarily write a lot of opioids because this is what happens. Um, patients come in, they use their medicine within 20 days. They don't, it doesn't last them 30 days. They're complaining that it's not lasting them. They're complaining that it doesn't last for 12 hours, that they have to take more. For example, if a patient overdid it one day, let's say it's an a patient with severe arthritis and they, and they kind of overdid it, you know, they walked the extra mile or they went out and did extra guarding. And now the next day they're really uncomfortable and the Oxycontin is not cutting it. You can also have them take something for breakthrough pain. So they could take Percocet in between just to get them over that couple days, you know, where they kind of, you know, over, overdid it. If, if the patient is coming in and saying that, you know, my medication's not lasting me, I know your concern is that that patient might be an addict, but you know, in some cases, maybe it's an 80 year old grandmother and she looks like a pretty legitimate person with a legitimate complaint. It may not really be addiction. It may be pseudo addiction. Well, what does that mean? Well, if someone has pseudo addiction, they exhibit a lot of the same behaviors as an addict. However, it's because their pain is not being adequately managed. Okay, so what does that mean? So if you, perhaps you need to titrate, perhaps you need to go up to the next dosing strength and see what happens. And if they tolerate it and that relieves their pain, those behaviors will subside. And then that's how you know it was pseudo addiction and not true addiction. So the concept of pseudo-addiction as a promotional ploy was that a person who is exhibiting addictive behaviors, hoarding the drugs, trying to get them from other sources, doctor shopping, craving, all of it, may not really be addicted to the opioids they're on. They just may still be in pain. Right. And the answer to that pain is, higher dosages of the opioid. At which and, way you take a step back and think about it, it's like, it's insane. 
and, but but you were trained to believe it was a real thing. Oh yeah. And you were trained to promote it to doctors as a real thing, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, pseudo addiction is a term that was coined by a Dr. J. David Haddix from a case report on a single patient. Did you know that? Wow. After he did that, guess which company he went to work for? Purdue. that's right yeah (laughs) it's astonishing you were talking about the ims data the prescriber data that purdue and other drug companies bought Mm -hmm. in order to then hone their marketing to particular physicians do you know who founded the ims company arthur sackler arthur sackler i that i did not know that at the time because I actually know someone who, who used to work for IMS, but I found that out after 2018, I was subpoenaed by the um, state of New Jersey. I think it was 2000, 2017. And after I started doing a lot of interviews and talking to different attorneys, different reporters, it came out that yes, that's how I found out that he actually started IMS, started with the data. When you made sales calls to healthcare providers and their staff, did you ever bring with you the souvenirs that have the word Oxycontin on them? When I started in 2008, that that kind of ended, I think, in 2007 or okay. 2005. I know because I used to have a lot of the tchotchkes and things when I was with Novartis. But with Purdue, no, we were only allowed to leave um, articles. We would leave um, information for CME, which is continuing medical education, because Purdue would financially back a lot of the courses the doctor could take because they needed a certain amount of uh, credits. That's promotion guised as education. Yes. Oh, yeah. Now, now did you ever uh, have as part of your job uh, the responsibility of trying to recruit physicians to be paid spokespeople for Purdue? Oxycontin in particular? Uh, on, a, on a small scale, I remember at one point they had asked us to give them three names of someone that would be interested in doing that. Nothing ever came of it in my territory because I didn't have enough big prescribers <laughs> or with potential in order to kind of qualify to do that. But the concept of these paid spokespeople or key opinion leaders was, mm-hmm. is to pay people who are perceived in medical communities as luminaries in the treatment of pain and have them promote a particular drug, in this case, Oxycontin, through settings that look like education, but they're really promoting. Well, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, they, they went for quote unquote training and we were told that um, like a lot, of, the representative would always be there as well. We were told that we could not you could not ask any questions about off-label use, but if a doctor did, that was okay. Like the doctors were able to do that. So, I mean, an easy way, you know, off the record, an easy way to, to deal with that is you, you you get to a couple of your doctors that you're closest to and say to them, hey, you know, when you go to the program, that might be a good time to ask about blah, blah, blah. Right. Ask about off-label prescribing so that the spokesperson can say, oh, absolutely. Even though it's not on the label, this drug is terrific for this kind of pain. Right. That kind because of pain. from doctor to doctor, they can do that. Right. I can't do it as a rep to a doctor. Doctor to doctor, they can do that. We're going to stop here for now and pick up more discussion with Carol in our next episode, where we get down to 
Why the hell did this happen? What was she thinking? When did the light turn on? And why is she willing to blow the whistle now? If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or hosts. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Counsel. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon.